Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Thanks so much and good morning C4 Church. And good morning to you online, whether you're in another country, at a cottage, on a train or plane or automobile, we're glad you're joining us. If you're in a car, put the cell phone down. Thank you. All right. Uh, like Josh just said, uh, this is the last in our pre-now sort of summer series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. And so if you've got scripture this morning, electronically or physically, please took, turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, specifically the fourth chapter, and that's where we're going to sort of beginning, begin our, our ending. Now this could be your first time in a, in a worship service, that is a church service in your life. This could be the 5,000th church service you've been in. It's always interesting when you're doing something that is either brand new or you're used to, to stop for a moment, look around, and ask, what is really going, going on around me? Many of us who have been Christians for days, months, years, or decades rarely stop and reflect sometimes on this great rite, this great ritual that we're participating in this morning right now. And as we join over one billion people globally in the same experience, many of us stop and, do not stop and ask. Why are we here, and what is really going on at this moment? It's an important question. What is happening at this moment in this service? See, much more is going on this morning than we feel or think. At this moment, at least according to Scripture, we're actually in the presence of the living God, and we've gathered together to worship God, to hear from God, to receive from God, and to give back to God. We're supposedly here to put God first, and get something second. But the question is, is that true? Eugene Peterson in his book, The Reverse Thunder, wrote these powerful words. Christians, uh, Christian worship, Christians worship with the conviction that they're actually in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, who speaks, who reveals, who creates, who redeems, who orders, who blesses. Now, outsiders walking in observe these acts of worship, and they see nothing like that at all. In his context, he writes, they see a few people singing unpopular songs, sometimes off-key, someone reading from an old book and making remarks that may or may not even interest the listeners, and then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine or grape juice, depending on your tradition, that are supposedly to give you nourishment to your eternal soul, like beef and potatoes help you live. So the question is, who is right? Is worship gatherings like this an actual meeting called to order by the Lord God himself, initiated by God himself, in which people of faith and relationship are blessed by his presence and respond to his salvation? Or really, no matter how good or not so good you run a service, is this a pathetic, sometimes desperate charade in which people attempt to get God's attention and then ask him to do something for them? Who's right? Is this a crutch or is this a relationship? And the answer, of course, is it depends on what relationship you're in. If you have an encounter with the living God, then, then yes, this is something more than a charade. But if you just come and you're here to get something, you've missed the point. See, the answer depends on where you look from, from above or below, from heaven's view or earth view. The truth is, according to Scripture, it is the first. 
No matter what the service feels like or looks like, no matter the cultural expression of a church service, whether it's old or new, whether it's historic, traditional, contemporary, or like us, just a little edgy, whether it's formal or free-flowing, worship gatherings are always about God first and foremost, and then us. Worship is always about encountering the living God, whether you feel him or not. Worship is always about heaven touching earth. We started this series with Pastor Joanna walking us through John's personal encounter with Jesus in Revelation 1. It was that vision that moved John to worship. It was that vision that moved him and others to have hope when there seemed to be no hope at all because they were under terrible persecution. It became that vision, and that vision became the grounding for Jesus to speak to the seven churches in ancient Turkey and then to us. So we started in heaven, and then we came to earth and heard Jesus thank us and rebuke us and promise things to us. But then the shift happens again. We're moved back to heaven in Revelation 4. But this time, the vision is just not about the personhood of Jesus. We get to see so much more. It allows us as gatherers, both Christians and seekers, to enter into the grand worship service, into the space around Jesus himself. See, through the use of image, color, and light, we see what worship is in its fullest form. The very thing we long for humanly but do not fully experience yet. It's a thing that we supposedly entered into for the last 35 minutes. Now listen carefully. We choose to end our series this morning as we began it. Not with us, not with John the writer, not even with our own church or actually the seven ancient churches on earth. John's attention here and our attention now moves back to heaven, back to a vision of God through Jesus. The personal correspondence and correction and blessing is now over. The call to overcome has been given, and all the promises are now bound up in what we're about to read. Nowhere in literature, from Genesis to Revelation, do we find a more inspiring presentation of a worship service and the God who reigns supreme over all. Let me say this again. What I'm about to read to you from ancient scripture is actually what takes place in heaven at this moment and is what we gather into every single time we meet with other Christians in Jesus' name. Remember where we ended last week? The seventh church. It was the church of Laodicea. Jesus loved this church deeply, but this church had become callous towards him, self-sufficient, prideful, not knowing their desperate situation even as a Christian church. Jesus ended the call to them in Revelation 3.20, remember? Here I am, Jesus said. I stand at the door of your church, of your life, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. The cry was given to Christians just like us to be authentic, to be faithful, to be intimate with God, to not resist him in any way, to be full of power, full of character, character, to walk with Jesus for real. And suddenly... The shift takes place. The image is no longer a closed door, but the very opposite. Because Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, as we walk back into the grand worship service that we see a part of here, begins like this. Verse 1. After this I looked. So after the vision of Jesus and, and after the seven churches and all the work that's been done, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Not closed, but open. God invites John now to see. He is welcome into God's very dwelling place. God again chooses to reveal himself. 
This is where reality is made plain. As this fresh wave of ecstasy, as this fresh wave of revelation sweeps over John himself, everything starts to become even clearer to him. One wrote, since all events on earth have their origins in heaven, the heaven ascent should not be unexpected. See, a true insight into personal life and history is only gained when we view all things from the vantage point of the heavenly throne. Did everyone just hear what I said? This is very important. Reality is defined in the clearest way when you view reality from heaven. And how you view reality from heaven is that you are deeply informed by the written word of God. If you do not consume on a regular basis the word of God to form how you think and what you say and see about situations, you will only see reality from down here and you will miss God all the time. There's a lesson here, though, for all of us. You'll notice that John is available to God's Spirit. He does not work himself up into a vision, unlike many people who attempt to, but nor is he also in the other camp that refuse to be sensitive and intimate with the living God and say, I'm not into that. He's just available. God, in his sovereignty, decides to give John this vision. God shows up by his Spirit, and he begins this new profound work. It says, the voice I'd heard speaking at first to me, like a trumpet, interesting, said. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John now swept up by the Spirit of God to the very door of heaven, and he knows the voice. It's the voice of Jesus, chapter 1. It's said that his, his voice was like rushing rivers, like a trumpet. And so Jesus calls his best friend John up, and the scene of heaven is opened, and we're about to see that God is on his throne. This, by the way, is where Handel started to get his inspiration for Handel's Messiah. Did you know that? And so amazingly, billions of people every year at Christmas hear Handel's Messiah, but it was Handel reading this encounter of the grand worship service that led him to pen one of the best worship experiences we've ever had. Wouldn't you agree? It's phenomenal. I was downtown one day at Christmas listening to Handel's Messiah and Roy Thompson, and it got so good I started raising my hands and realized what I was doing. All Everyone's like, you know... What, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, listen, this is my boss's stuff, not yours, so move aside. Anyway, sorry, side note. Anyway, so he writes this out of this, and it's profound. Jesus declares one thing. I am about to show you what must happen and will happen. How important these words are again. Do not forget context. Context is king. These Christians getting this revelation, including John, are living under horrific times, under an empire that was starting to systematically hate Christians. There is an emperor soon coming after John's death who will bring terrible destruction, and they need to always be reminded in the midst of their pain, suffering, question, and scared experience that Jesus knows what must take place, and he's in control. He declares that once I was in the spirit, verse 2, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone was sitting on it. We're first given our glimpse into where God lives. The very first thing we see, interestingly, is not God, but a throne. Now you need to know if you read the book of Revelation, a throne is mentioned in almost every single chapter of this whole book. And three out of the four times the word throne is used in the New Testament, it's used in the book of Revelation. And so when something happens so much, we need to pay attention. A throne has no understanding in our culture. See, a throne was the symbol of a king. Unlike our modern world, the ancient world had absolute monarchs. 
It is the place where they ruled from. When a king or queen would sit on their throne, they had life and death, war and peace in their hands. A throne is the image of absolute sovereignty. Democracy has no room in this place. Now to all the churches in Turkey, they of course were deeply troubled by what, by what Caesar's throne represented. But John again will not let them forget that there is a throne above every other throne and there is a king greater than all other kings. And there is someone sitting on that throne that is greater than any who has ever lived. Now up to this point, if you read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, people who have followed and encountered and walked with the living God have had glimpses into this space. The psalmist cried out in Psalm 104.2 that God himself wraps himself in light with a garment like a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Paul, writing generations later to a young pastor, said these words at the end of 1 Timothy 6.16. God, who alone is immortal and who lives in, notice it, unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and glory and might forever and ever. And it's a good time to say, Amen. But now John gives us the full picture. We begin to see, to hear, to feel, actually almost to taste the environment of heaven. Verse 3, And the one, that's God, who sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. See, God's very presence, his very essence, is full of color, full of beauty, themes of mercy, holiness, wrath, and love are all connected to the meanings of these stones. And since God lives in unapproachable light, his personhood and his DNA is both felt and seen in the reflection of the most precious of things. It says that a rainbow surrounds God himself, and the rainbow is like a halo or like an aura. Why is that important? Because the rainbow is God's symbol on earth of faithfulness and non-judgment. It is the symbol that he is faithful. And so the idea is that actually stemming out of the very DNA of God is this halo-like rainbow because he is faithful always. Step back another bit. Surrounding that throne is 24 other thrones. And seated on them are 24 elders and they're dressed in white and crowns of gold on their heads. This is an amazing picture some scholars believe that these are angels. In Solomon's temple, there were 24 orders of priests that served in God's temple. And they believe that these 24 elders in heaven and the priests on earth mimic each other. They represent heaven in the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. And yet many others believe, and I sort of fall down in this place, that this is actually a grand image of God's people throughout history. Twelve of the elders represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and the other twelve represent the twelve apostles, and together they make up the people of God, the Old and New Testament, all those that have known God, the only true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of kings and prophets, now found fully in the face of Jesus Christ, bound together by the Spirit. And so you have the image of God himself in, in unapproachable light. We can't even use all the language because he's almost undescribable. Around him are the people of God. And then it says, and from the throne. From that throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and, and peals of thunder. From the throne where God sits. This is where all profound phenomena start. All these images are about awesome majesty and the power of God. Lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder are almost like voices declaring to us who God is. 
Now, I love a good thunderstorm. Anyone else love a good thunderstorm? Especially in the summer. That's what I always say, like I said a few weeks ago. Love sitting at a cottage, love a massive storm, love a loon, feel real Canadian, and then life is good. But what's amazing is a violent storm is a profound thing to watch. But can you imagine looking at a person in front of you and the storm is attached to them? That is what this is saying. That when you observe God, the power and the essence and the violence of that storm is not just around him, it is him. This is the grandeur of God. It says, before the throne there were seven lamps that were blazing. And they are the seven spirits of God. Before God the Father, forever present, interesting is the Holy Spirit. Ever moving, ever present, the living perpetual fire of God. The Holy Spirit always stands between us and God, for he is God himself, and he reveals God in his fullness. He's the third person of the Trinity, but you can never see God without him. Well, the picture shifts from the throne and the one sitting on the throne, and the one perpetually living in front of the throne, and the 12 and the 24 gathered around the throne. And like a fantastic movie, the lens is now pans back even more, and we see something else. John says, and also, verse 6, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, and it was clear as crystal. I read that this week, and I wasn't that impressed, until I sat back and realized I was being an arrogant modernist. See, much of what we miss in these images is because where we live today and not understanding where this was. See, glass 2,000 years ago doesn't exist like we have it today. All glass 2,000 years ago was cloudy. It was semi-opaque. It was dark. They did not have basic glass like you and I take for granted. Every window we have in our house would be shocking to them. Every mirror that we have in our homes today would be shocking to them. So you need to understand that when John uses the image like this, this is a symbol of perfection. This is expensive beyond expensive. It is unheard of. It is magnificent. But there's even more. Not only does it, does it give an image of something undescribable at their moment. This image of the sea ties Genesis through Revelation together in a few words. One person wrote it this way. Listen close. In front of the throne that gathers and illumines all the persons and creatures is that sea of glass like crystal. The glass sea is before the throne and in order for worshipers to enter into that worship service to get to the throne, it is necessary, everyone ready, to pass through this sea. The crystal sea is a baptism tank. In Solomon's temple, there was a great brass sea, a large basin, and it was set for the purposes of cleansing yourself at the entrance of the place of worship. No one was able to worship God without going through water. In early Christian centuries, the usual place of worshiping homes was in Christian homes. The Roman style of home building, there was always a place of washing at the entrance of the home. And this became the first place where people began to baptize in homes. See, baptism was and is that great symbol of entering into the worshiping community of Christians. The world is comprehensively, but not indiscriminately, gathered around the throne of God. And it is first cleansed by baptism and then presented. The waters of baptism, like the Red Sea and the Jordan River, which they're often identified with, are the waters in which we pass through, leaving our old life and entering into a new life. And miraculously, as we pass through the water, we are both alive and clean. This grand baptismal sea will occur again and again, especially in Revelation 15. 
Now, amazing, later John, if you read the whole book of Revelation, will add an altar. And so you have the throne, and you have the altar, and you have the sea. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, let me just give you some basic church history. We get our ideas of church from this worship service. The idea of having a pulpit, having a communion table, and a baptism tank all come from the throne, the great sea, and the altar. Did you know that? And so the very architecture of churches, whether it's ornate, fancy, modernist, or anything else, all has its roots in what's really going on in heaven. And so what we have presented here is God sitting on his throne, the Holy Spirit before him, the people around God, this great symbol of salvation before God. And as John is looking at this crystal that moves like water, suddenly something else happens. He looks around and he is introduced to the audience around God. See, every single time God allows one person to see, to hear, or to encounter him in all his fullness, there is always one other group of people that show up. Do you know what they are? Angels. Every time you encounter God, you're going to encounter angels. In the Old Testament, there are multiple encounters of people between the living God and them. This is how it's written in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel the prophet said, I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning, notice the connection, and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In their appearance was the form of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Who would be peeing their pants at this moment by getting this? Yes. Isaiah has the same encounter. He meets God in the same throne room. And it says in Isaiah 6-2, Above God were seraphs. Each had six wings. Two wings they covered their faces. Two they covered their feet. And two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. John's encounter is the same. It reads like this. In the center, around that throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was a flying eagle. Each, had four, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Please, you don't need to go to the movies to get inspired to see a science fiction. Just read scripture, we've got it down. You have profound experiences here. Here we see an exalted order of angelic beings who are the immediate guardians of the throne of God, who lead the worship service in an adoration of God. The images, though strange, are so unbelievably important. These angels that have eyes covering them all over the place is declaring that they are all seeing, alert, full of truth and knowledge. They both look towards God and towards all of creation because they represent creation to God. As one said, the mightiest of the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among wild beasts is the lion. And the mightiest among all of them are people. This gives us a clue. The four forms of these angels suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in nature, actually including men, stand before the God, stand before God himself. They are represented before the throne, and they take their part in worshiping God forever. Isn't that unbelievable? What is being declared by these four angels is that God is God, and nothing in creation is above him. Nothing. And then this is what they say, day and night. Never stopping. Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is the great I am. He is eternal. He is above time. He is in time. He is beyond time. But not only is God perpetually eternal, He is holy. Holy means that He is not created. He is separate. He is not one of us. He is the creator of us. Never make that mistake. The second thing holy means is that he is without sin. There is no evil in our God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? There's no evil. You can trust him explicitly. All day long, God is worshipped, and these angels cry out, He is above all of us. He is not one of us. He is not tainted like so many are. He is trustworthy unlike so much. See, God at His very essence is love, yes. But much of the time we miss, really God at His essence is holiness. Think about it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. None of these have full power or meaning unless they are done from a holy place. Wouldn't you agree? If your motives are pure, they are pure. And so God himself is declaring and is declared as holy above creation and also separate because he does not have sin. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you've created all things, and by your will they are created, and they have their being. In other words, our reality is not a mistake done by nature. God has started all things. God is central. We are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. We as people are not. There is nothing grander than God himself. This image is so Middle Eastern and ancient. Prostrating oneself before the deity to kiss his feet or the hem of his garment. Casting crowns before the throne is acknowledging that actually all authority we even have is delegated. See, for Christians, only the one who sits on the throne is worthy. Any other claim is nothing but blasphemous. That's why they refuse to bow to Caesar, and we must refuse to bow to any other god, worldview, or system. All sovereignty must yield to this. Notice the context of this worship service. Every angel that chose not to rebel against God and become a demon, all those that have remained faithful, do this worship, here's the key word, willingly. All of us who've met God through the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we do this willingly. But not all will do this willingly, but all will do this. Never forget this. Worship and wrath are the same thing depending on where you stand with God. Can I say that again? Worship and wrath are the same thing depending on where you stand with God in relationship. If you have relationship, it is worship. If you do not, it is wrath. Remember back to our series in Philippians where they're talking, Paul's talking about Jesus and he says in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything, everyone will bow. Some will bow in joy. Many others will bow in terror or resistance. Many people will come willingly. Many others will not. 
Never believe the lie that many people when they die, when they meet the living God, will just be terrified. Some of them who resisted him here will even resist him in his face. Never forget every demon, every person, all of creation, every king, Caesar, leader, every known and forgotten person, every religious and non-religious person, every atheist, agnostic, every religious pagan, every animist, every Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Baha'i, Sikh, religious Jew, every Shintoist, every New Ager, every witch and every Satanist, every communist and capitalist, from you who are housewives and stay-at-home dads, to presidents, engineers, cooks, artists, rich, poor, All will bow before this God. That is the truth. And what we choose to do in this life with this God ripples into eternity. Relationship now and worship now, worship forever. Non-relationship now, hostility and separation forever. Now when you get this grand picture, I want to re-remind you that what I have just read you is what we join when we sing and we give and we preach and we live a Christian life. But there's more. Not all has been said. See, any good Orthodox Jew could have written Revelation 4 and the whole Jewish community would have said, Amen and Amen. But see, John is a Christian Jew. And if you've noticed, Jesus has not been introduced yet. That's why you have to read Revelation 4 with Revelation 5. And if you take this home and read this this week, you will notice that there are at least four, probably five worship songs in these two passages. And so we get the full experience of worship only when we read part of chapter 5. Look down at verse 6 in chapter 5. And then he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as it had been killed, slain, murdered, bleeding out, standing at the center of the throne, Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from him who's sitting on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Notice this. Don't miss this. I know it's a little academic, but it's so important. You have God sitting on the throne, the Father. You have Jesus in front of the throne now, and he's described as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then there's the description of the seven horns or the seven eyes, which is another reference to the Holy Spirit. God in his totality, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, blessed Trinity, now here being worshipped. God himself is seen in his fullness. And this is the worship we join into, knowingly or not. The foundation, like Josh was saying, the cornerstone that Steph led us in, is Jesus with Israel and the church, the Old and New Testament, making up the people of God that surround him. Think about it. The apostles and the tribes of Israel, they were fallen people, mixed up, flawed, faithless, sinful, inconsistent human beings. That's good news for us today. Heaven is going to be made up of sinful, inconsistent people like us, but because of God's mercy, because of God's grace, because of God's forgiveness, because of God's election, because God loved us first, that God made us a family and set us free and we're his children, we get to be the people that surround his throne. If the walls and the foundations of God's new heaven and new earth are made up of people like us and them, there is great hope if you're struggling in your faith, right? This is the heartbeat of our movement. And then it says that this group of people sang a new song. 
You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. You have reversed the great sin of Adam and Eve. You have reversed Babel where God came and gave multiple languages to deal with the rebellion of humanity. You have now bound us into a new people from many tribes and languages and backgrounds. We have one spirit and one language before one God and we will reign with him. One wrote John had a vision of God in chapter 5 being worshipped as the Lord of all and creator. But in, in chapter 4... In chapter 5, Jesus is now worshipped the exact same way as the Father. And notice, he is worshipped because he is Redeemer. The angels and the people of God around him ascribe them the same worship. The Father and the Son are equal. If you ever have a Jehovah Witness show up at your door, open these passages and have some fun. Jesus is God. And this is how it ends in Revelation 5.11. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne with the living creatures and the elders. So now you have all of creation. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and under the sea singing to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures cried out, Amen. It is true. It is true. It is true. And the elders fell down and they what? Worshipped. That is what we do every Sunday, whether you feel it or not. We started our series in Revelation 1 where we encountered Jesus in his grandest, most exalted, most revealed way. And I said these words to you as my, as my family. There is joy if you choose to worship Jesus, both in song and in life. I cannot make you worship as a Christian, but if you would be open to grander experiences of worship, joy and worship are the same experience. For when you worship Jesus in song, when you worship Jesus in obedience, you enter actually into a person's presence, Jesus's. Many in our connect groups have been giving feedback and have talked about how they have had a new or, 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 or fresh view of Jesus. Some brand new Christians never understood the magnificence of Christ. Many of us who've walked for a while have realized how we have boxed Jesus too much. One young adult said very honestly, I think I had a PG version of Jesus. I think I now have the rated R. I think it's a beautiful description. Because what this is, is putting Jesus in his full context. We met Jesus in chapter 1. Then we moved for seven weeks to each church. And I preached time and time again that there is freedom and joy produced in knowing what Jesus not only has done and is going to do, but being open to what Jesus is saying to us as a church and you personally, directly to you. Because when we know what heaven thinks, we know what to do next. But we need to end our series this morning with a worship service, which places everything in context. There's joy when we see Jesus. There's joy when we hear Jesus and obey Jesus. And there is joy, let me say this carefully, there's joy when we know from heaven's view what we're joining in week after week. See, this is the great equalizer of culture. When we come in 
and read Revelation 4 and 5, no matter when and how we experience worship here, whether we like the style or we don't, whether we prefer this or that, when we understand what's really happening and what we're joining into, this equalizes us. This passage reminds us that God is in charge, that God wants to be near to us, and that worship services and worship life produces joy because everything else is put into perspective. Let me end with a few thoughts and I'm done. This grand worship service reminds us that God is in charge. Never forget the reason why the book of Revelation was written was for persecuted Christians to be reminded that God was going to bring justice. As one said, the pastoral reason for even Revelation 4 and 5 is to ensure suffering Christians that God and Jesus are sovereign, that the events that Christians are facing are part of God's sovereign plan, that he is going to redeem them and all that face them down and persecute them will be prosecuted. If you are suffering today as a Christian, and I mean this in a very genuine way, if you are suffering for your faith, if you are living just through the pain of life, emotionally, mentally, physically, sexually, you can fill in the blank, I just want to say to you, and I'm not being trite or just pastoral, I mean this genuinely, God is in control. God is sovereign. And though we live in a broken, messed up world, the book of Revelation and this worship service reminds us that he's coming back, all things are going to be made right, and everything that we desire in the purest sense will be given. Take hold. It's like Peter walking on the water. When he looked at Christ, he didn't sink. When he looked at the waves, he went down like a rock. Many of you need to hear this morning from one of your shepherds, look back to the glorified Jesus. Look back, because if you don't, you will sink. If people survived horrific persecution and murder for their faith, and what bolstered them was a clear understanding of the heavenly throne that I encourage some of you to look back up to him because you will find joy and hope there that is unnatural. The second thing I want to say is don't forget God is about relationships. Hear this this morning. We've just been painted a profound picture of God in his grandeur. But never forget he's still near. As one wrote, God is self-sufficient, yes. But as Augustine rightly declared, God thirsts to be thirst after. Did I say that again? God thirsts to be thirst after. He, his love makes him vulnerable to those he loves. And if we dare use such language to describe our God, intimacy is what he's about. Richard Foster wrote, our God is not made of stone. His heart is most sensitive and tender of all. No act goes unnoticed in worship. Even a cup of cold water to someone who's in trouble, it says in the Bible, gets all of heaven's attention. God reminds us as a church this morning that as we worship him in his grandeur and his, in his awesomeness, he still desires personal relationship with us. God is in control. God is relational. But I end with this. As the team comes out, worship, worship singing, worship obedience is where joy is found. And I end with this other quotation. And this is the most important one of them all, other than scripture. Only when said, listen please, only in the depths of our worship, as we stand in awe of God's majestic glory, do all other competing claims for affection and attention recede to the rightful place. God alone, the scriptures declare, is God. He alone merits first place beyond every other love, every other anxiety, every other family member, job, every other fear that consumes us. If God's grandeur could dwarf the Caesar of the time, it also challenges in a different way the numbing triteness of our modern Western culture. 
God's greatness summons our attention this morning. Who are we to be overwhelmed by mortal emperors or our present trials? That God is Lord of history and has everything under his control helps us and everything else to see life the way it should be. Praise puts persecution. Praise puts poverty. Praise puts pestilence and plague into perspective. God is sovereign. He's bringing about his purposes. And this world's pain that we experience is merely birth pains for a new world that is coming where we will worship the Lamb. You say, well, what's the point? Here it is. If you are not regularly engaging, whether you feel like it or not, in living a Christian life and regularly engaging in worship together, two out of six is not good enough, friends. We are called to gather as a community, to join the heavenly community, to worship with intensity. Because when we worship God, God's presence shows up. And when God's presence shows up, things get oriented in the right way. If God's presence is never around and his word is never around, we will start believing that pain, persecution, trial, suffering, and sin are bigger than the God we worship. But in times of worship, musically, in connect groups, in reading scripture, in giving, in doing social stuff together in the name of Jesus, when God's presence shows up and worship is done, things get in right perspective. Worship and you will be set free. Because you will be reminded that God the Father is on his throne. The Son who has been slain has bought us. And the Holy Spirit is perpetually always before us. This is the word of God. And what do we all say? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So let's pray together. Let's, let's stand and pray. God, we come before you. You who sit on the throne surrounded by a rainbow. You who have, well... You who are an unapproachable light. We only approach you because of Jesus. Because we couldn't any other way. We worship you, Father, on the throne. Lamb of God slain. You who have purchased us and made us into a family. Holy Spirit. Perpetual fire. One who makes us like Jesus. Introduces us to God. And, and, and promises us resurrection. To you we gather. And we do join every church on earth. All around the world right now and all of heaven, and every angel. And we say to you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and it is to come. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You deserve all honor and glory. And I pray for myself, honestly, beyond this moment, and my friends, that worship would grow more and more and more. So when we face down the garbage and crap of life, that we will know it is not the end, and we can have hope in the middle of it. Make C4 Church people of worship whatever that needs to look like. We ask this again in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.